0: This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, January twelfth, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. Ahead on our show this afternoon, helping food-insecure households address health concerns
1: really good opportunity to complement our clinical screenings uh, that we provide for every patient when they see one of our providers and social determinant screenings. And this program just really gives our teams a, a tool to do that very succinctly in a very integrated manner.
0: And just ahead in about four minutes, as Oklahoma deals with the rapid spread of Omicron, how is that state's Department of Health trying to get more people tested? Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore finds out more just ahead. There are increases across all numbers regarding COVID-19 in Arkansas, included in yesterday's count from the Arkansas Department of Health. The ADH counts more than 7,700 new cases, 25 newly confirmed deaths and a net increase of 80 hospitalizations. There are nearly 1,000 new cases of COVID-19 in Washington and Benton counties in the last 24 hours. Hospitals in the two counties report 120 virus patients. That's an increase over the past week, but still shy of the record number of virus patients recorded in mid-August last year. That number was 173. Governor Asa Hutchinson is urging unvaccinated Arkansans to get their shots. The governor says the state's active cases have doubled in the past week and hospitalizations have increased by a net of more than 370 patients in just the last seven days. The governor says to help with stress that health systems might be experiencing, Arkansas is increasing hospital capacity.
2: We have $50 million approved by the uh, a steering committee yesterday. The legislature will be taking action on this. This will provide us with 265 beds. Uh, I had the mark of 1,000 when action would be taken. We've taken that action and uh, that should assure us of having a space into the uh, next uh, week or so anyway in terms of hospital capacity. The governor says the
0: Arkansas National Guard has been deployed to help hospitals ramp up PCR testing, and the state has ordered 1.5 million rapid home tests to be delivered as supplies allow. The governor says about 211,000 have been received, and another nearly 400,000 were expected to arrive in the next 24 hours. There is a map at healthy.arkansas.gov showing where at-home tests are available. And the governor says the state has increased the number of vaccination clinics across the state. He also says there
2: are measures the state will not take as the latest variant spreads across Arkansas. What we can't do in Arkansas is to close down in-classroom instruction in our schools. It is critically important for the well-being of our young people, for their mental health, for their development, uh, for their education and for the stability in life that in-classroom instruction provides.
0: Governor Hutchinson says it's impractical to ask families with unvaccinated children to shelter in place
2: or to call for a pause to public interactions. We need to take the other precautions that I've identified, including getting vaccinated. The governor made his
0: comments yesterday afternoon during his weekly press briefing in Little Rock. Colby Fulfer will be the Republican Party nominee for the state Senate District 7 special election. He collected just more than 52% of the vote in yesterday's GOP primary. He'll face Democrat Lisa Parks in the February 8th election to replace former state Senator Lance Eads. U.S. Steel is selecting an eastern Arkansas location for a $3 billion steel mill. The project, the largest capital investment in state history, will be in Osceola. Company officials say the mill will eventually employ 900 people, and the average pay will be over $100,000 annually. Construction is expected to begin early this year. The final Associated Press poll for the college football season places the Arkansas Razorbacks at number 21. Arkansas ended the season on New Year's Day with a win over Penn State in the Outback Bowl. Clear and continued mild tonight with lows around 35 across the region. Sunny tomorrow, highs from 59 to 63. The weekend might bring some precipitation. The National Weather Service gives the entire area a 50 to 60 percent chance of some rain or some snow from Friday night through early Sunday morning. This is Ozarks at Large. Yesterday, the Oklahoma State Department of Health reported almost 65,000 active cases of COVID-19 in that state. That reflects a steady increase of new cases. However, the state's update does not include the number of tests being administered to Oklahomans, which makes it impossible to factor in the positivity rate. In a recent statement, the Department of Health says they're committing to ramping up testing operations around the state. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spoke to Erica Rankin-Riley from the Oklahoma State Department of Health and asked, what exactly does ramping up testing operations mean?
3: So by ramping up the State Department of Health and in collaboration with our county health departments all across the state, we extended some weekend hours in some areas. We have extended even hours during the week in some places. And then we've also offered up some mobile testing units. So we've just been really increasing the accessibility to testing for Oklahomans, as that's what we're hearing a lot of people are looking for tests right now. As far as concrete numbers, the one, the only number I have currently is that over the weekend, our public health lab, we really focused on getting tests to the lab as quickly as we can, and they processed 3,800 samples. So we're really ramping up and testing and getting those to the lab as soon as we can.
4: So 3,800 tests were administered by the State Department of Health uh, over the weekend. Is that is that sound right?
3: So those 3,800 were taken to the lab. I'm not for sure exact on the dates when those were, but they told me it was this weekend. They processed those samples over the weekend. So that's the only concrete number I have right now.
4: As a comparison, I'm looking at the Arkansas Department of Health and, you know, in a somewhat round number, uh, in yesterday's numbers, they show that they had approximately 10,000 tests in one day. And that compares to what Oklahoma is, is saying is, is that, you know, you're getting about 3,800 tests that are being, you know, tested or is sent to a laboratory over a weekend. Do you think that there's any capacity to ramp up the testing operations even more to, to reach more folks and to um, make sure that you're able to supply the folks who are looking for and needing tests to get access to those?
3: Yes, um, we are trying to do everything we can in planning and working with our county health departments to ramp it up as much as possible. I know there's a lot of people who are flexing their um, jobs to step in with this push for testing right now. So as much testing as we can get out there in the communities all across the state um, is what we're really trying to do and making it as accessible as possible.
4: You talked about the mobile testing units that are being sent out. Where where do you anticipate those will go or where have they been so far?
3: So there have been a couple of areas and I'm sorry I don't know that quite off the top of my head but we do have a website that keeps track of all the testing and it has a link for OSDH mobile wellness units and that's how people can kind of go see where they are, if they're going to be in their area. And as well, it offers scheduling tests. So we've really been pushing people to that website to find the closest testing to them.
4: And just broadly speaking, are we expecting it to be in more urban areas like you know, maybe suburbs of Oklahoma City or Tulsa, are we, you know, is the focus more on rural areas where it's harder to get, you know, not just a test in a store, but even, you know, traveling 25, 30 minutes just to get to a local, you know, county health department? What's, What's been the focus of the idea of where to send them more broadly?
3: Anecdotally, it will be our more, I'm hearing it's our rural areas, so trying to get to those people who, like you said, may not have as much access as the more urban areas to testing.
4: As we're speaking, it's Tuesday morning. Uh, Your latest report shows that there are 62,000 active cases of COVID-19 in the state of Oklahoma, and that count doesn't include at-home tests. Is that right? Right. How could someone who has tested positive with an at-home test report that positive case to the Oklahoma State Department of Health?
3: So right now, there is no reporting system in place for these at-home tests. We are encouraging people to seek out a confirmatory PCR test, and that will get reported to the State
4: Department of Health. So do you have any way of accurately knowing how many active cases there are in the state if if people aren't able to call the State Department of Health and say, hey, I have an at-home test. Here's the serial number on the box. I've tested positive. Do you you feel confident in saying that there are 62,000 active cases of COVID-19 if you're unsure of how many at-home tests are being, you know, confirmed as positive tests?
3: You know, we know there is probably, all through this pandemic even, there's probably more tests are more positive cases than we are actually reporting. We've known that all along. That number is a pretty elusive number and one that you can't really guess on. But those are the tests that have come through us. So we do know there's probably more cases of COVID-19 out there in the state.
4: You know, we've seen a consistent push from the State Department of Health to encourage Oklahomans to get vaccinated. You know, if you scroll through your Twitter account, it's almost every other post is, is a A message encouraging Oklahomans to get vaccinated. But at the end of December, Governor Stitt said that he would not be getting, nor did he need to get, a COVID-19 booster. You know, as we know, he got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and countless studies have shown that, you know, people who have gotten the Johnson & Johnson one-shot vaccine are one of the most vulnerable of folks who are vaccinated. And, uh, you know, the CDC and other health officials have encouraged, highly encouraged people with that specific vaccine dosage to get a booster. But Governor Stitt has said repeatedly that he is not going to be getting a COVID-19 booster. How does the Department of Health expect an average Oklahoman to get the vaccine if the clear messaging isn't being heeded by the leader of the state himself?
3: I think the whole time we have been arming Oklahomans with the information that is needed to be able to make this decision, and we believe it is a personal health decision that should be made, so we're just encouraging people to speak with your primary health care providers and discuss it and make what decision is best for you and your family, but we do encourage vaccinations and boosters when they do become available for those who are eligible in the time frame.
4: What about you? Have you had an opportunity to to get the vaccine or to get boosted?
3: I have um, been able to get the vaccine, yes.
0: Emily Rankin-Riley is the spokesperson for the Oklahoma Department of Health, and she spoke on the phone yesterday with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. Yesterday, during his weekly press briefing about the pandemic, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson mentioned hospitalizations related to the virus have increased dramatically in the past week. The governor says he asked the State Department of Health to find out for just one day last week how many Arkansas virus patients were admitted because of COVID-19 and how many were admitted for a different reason, then tested positive for the virus upon admission. He says for that one specific day, about a third of the hospitalizations represented people
2: with COVID-19 who didn't know they had COVID-19. And I asked the Department of Health to uh, do a survey, one day glimpse in time, as to how many in the hospital for COVID are there because they went there because they were sick and ill and had uh, uh, symptoms of COVID versus going there for an incidental or other reason and then being tested in the hospital and being identified as having COVID. And that one day glimpse of time survey that was taking 30% of the hospitalizations that were accounted for COVID in that day were actually incidental. In other words, they went to the hospital for another reason and they uh, were tested for COVID as they should and they were positive, even though they might not have been symptomatic at that point. And the reason the statistic is still relevant is because that's the way we've been doing it from day one. But secondly, that if someone is in the hospital for another surgery or for some other reason, they still have to be uh, treated as a COVID patient. Uh, They have to have the PPE that's necessary. Uh, The uh, hospital has to take the precautions. They have to have a level of isolation and so, Uh, it is appropriate to count that, but it's also important for everyone to understand that distinction. That one-day survey the governor mentioned took place during
0: the first week of January. Beyond the messages of get vaccinated, wear a mask, and wash your hands, there are other strategies to staying healthy, exercise the right diet, and Regular wellness checks. But proper nutrition and health care aren't always easily accessible. About one in eight people in northwest Arkansas live in a food insecure household, and that can mean difficult decisions, for instance, choosing between rent and food. That, in turn, the American Heart Association says, can mean reliance on inexpensive processed food and fast food. That's where the American Heart Association is stepping in with funding from the Walmart Foundation and Partner Community Clinic to create the Healthy Hearts NWA Lifestyle Rx Initiative. Healthcare providers at St. Francis Community Clinics locations in Washington and Benton Counties will conduct nutrition screening through the new project and provide resources designed for each specific family's needs. Last week, we reached Serena Munns, Vice President of Strategic Relationships with the American Heart Association, and Amanda Achagowan, the Chief Operating Officer at Community Clinic Northwest Arkansas, to learn more about the project. Serena says the work for the project began more than a year ago.
5: The Heart Association really started looking at our individual markets and thinking through what our next steps would be and realizing that we needed um I don't wanna say a new strategy, but kind of a reset on our strategy for our individual markets. So, we did a community health needs assessment in October of 2021, and that really led us down the path of identifying three different areas that we needed to focus on in Northwest Arkansas um, tobacco and vaping, nutrition security, and hypertension. And so, as we looked at our community partners and the opportunities that were available um, through foundational funding, this all just kind of aligned really well. Um, Walmart had an opportunity to apply for a grant around, um, healthy food and access for all and community clinic. It was already doing some of the work and we were just the convener, um, of how it all came together. And so that's, I mean, Amanda, feel free to chime in, but that's really how it kind of started of, if we did this, could this look like this? And um, what does the community need and how can we better serve the patient population for Community Clinic?
1: It was just really great timing for us. Community Clinic had begun a community supported agriculture program for low income and SNAP beneficiaries in the summer, uh, actually spring of 2021. And we also expanded our patient advocate program around the same time. And so this these conversations just really um, complemented the efforts of the Heart Association and the, these two new initiatives that Community Clinic had had going as well.
0: And what it, I mean, there's, there, there are different things involved here, education, but one of the big ones is access. Right. I mean, that's a pivotal part of this.
5: Yes, access, definitely, but I think that one of the things that I am most proud that we were able to build into this program is this screening component. So for any of the uh, participants to be enrolled, and Amanda can talk to you a little bit more about that process, but one of the initial things is a nutritional screening. Um, are they food insecure? Um, are there things that are limiting their ability to sign up for assistant programs? Are there limited access because of transportation? What do those needs look like? And how can we work with the patient on solving for those needs? Um, I think that that is one of like the pivotal things that makes this program so unique um, because it starts with talking with the patient and assessing the patient and then it moves to okay, how can we better help them with this prescription? So um, much like a doctor prescribes for, you know, migraines or high blood pressure or whatever it is, this is a lifestyle prescription. So we're solving for, um, you know, SNAP enrollment. We're solving for hypertension um, and steps that they can do on their own. We're solving for nutrition security um, and an assortment of other things like physical activity.
0: Amanda, how does that screening? manifests itself? How does it work?
5: Sure. So we know that up to
1: 80% or perhaps even more than 80% of what affects a person's health happens outside of the walls of a clinic. And those we refer to those factors as social determinants of health. And so the screening that Serena is talking about is really uh, really meant to complement the clinical care that a patient receives. So oftentimes when a patient is not achieving the health outcomes that we would like for them to achieve, There's an underlying factor it's because they don't have access to transportation to get to a pharmacy. It's because they haven't enrolled in Medicaid and snap and other benefits to to help cover some of the cost of those of that care. It's because they don't have access to healthy, nutritious foods to help manage that chronic condition. So it's, again, a really good opportunity to complement our clinical screenings uh, that we provide for every patient when they see one of our providers and social determinant screenings. And this program just really gives our teams a a tool to do that very succinctly in a very integrated manner.
0: You mentioned um, locally sourced agriculture. I know that's part of this as well, correct?
1: Yes, we have been Uh, working with the Food Conservancy for over over a year now on our community-supported agriculture program. So we were able to enroll many individuals and families in that program last summer. They were community clinic patients. There was a cost-sharing to that. And through this program with the Heart Association, we are actually going to be able to give families some of that locally grown, locally sourced produce along with recipes and diet and lifestyle recommendations to help them use it. And the hope there is that by giving them some of the tools and some of the food for free, that we're going to help build a healthy habit for the entire family.
0: As much sense as it makes, as much logic as there, putting it all together takes some work. Because when you're talking about transportation, you're talking about access to, you know, healthy, nutritious food. When you're talking about that lifestyle prescription, there are a lot of elements that have to come together.
1: Absolutely. And I would just say that our patient advocates are chief problem solvers. Um, So they really, really um, work hard to familiarize themselves with all the resources in every community that we serve and all of the mechanisms through which we can help a patient with those things that you mentioned. So they do a fantastic job of keeping track of all of that information and then putting together all the pieces of the puzzle for the patient, depending on their circumstances.
5: Yeah. And, you know, I love that she brought in the patient advocates because not only are they helping us piece together the puzzle that made this come to life, there also are eyes and ears in the clinics. And so there have already been some great things that we're having to better understand um, as we're looking to build this in the future. Um, So just little things that you wouldn't think of that are Impacting a patient's decision on their health journey, um, it's like okay, what? How, how do we figure this out? How do we how do we build this new puzzle um, so that we can best serve the patient?
0: Serena Mons is vice president of strategic relationships with the American Heart Association. We also heard from Amanda Achegowan, the chief operating officer at Community Clinic Northwest. We all spoke by Zoom last week. Support for the Healthy Hearts NWA Lifestyle RX initiative supported. By a $250,000 grant from Walmart Foundation. Just ahead on Ozarks, another piece of University of Arkansas history from Charlie Allison. This week, he explains how the purpose of one building on campus has shifted dramatically over the decades. That's just ahead.
6: Now that the
7: holidays are over, you might be thinking about returning gifts that didn't quite hit the spot. Your
2: blanket has a very high probability of being in a landfill. The life of a return is a very, very sad path.
6: I'm Elsa Chang. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered
0: this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF 91.3. You can take KUAF with you anywhere with the free KUAF app. The city of Fayetteville is asking residents to compost their Christmas trees through the end of this month for free. Residents of Fayetteville can place trees with their trash and recycling on regular collection days, or you could take them to the city's compost facility at 1708 South Armstrong Avenue. Lights, decorations, and plastic do have to be removed before the trees are collected, and. No artificial trees will be picked up. Light strands could be recycled, by the way, at the Marion Orton Recycling Center on North Street. If you'd like more details, you can visit Fayetteville-AR.gov or you could call 575-8398. Planning ahead for when it's warmer, Colour Mountain Bike Preserve will host its first ever endurance mountain bike race May 14th. Racers can compete in three-person teams or solo for either a six or twelve hour route. Registration open now. You can learn more at noon-to-moon-race.com. M- noon to moonrace.com. That's <laughs> noon. Let me try that again. Noon, the number two, moonrace.com. Noon to moonrace.com or the Kohler Mountain Bike Preserve Facebook page.
8: Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents In American Waters, a new exhibition featuring marine paintings by a wide range of American artists, including Georgia O'Keeffe, Amy Sherald, Nick Cave, and more, as these artists present the beauty, violence, and transformative power of the sea in American life. On view through January 31st. Tickets and info at crystalbridges.org. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or com for information.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. If you live on or by or work on or by a college campus you know the landscape is anything but static. Even if there isn't earth being moved for a new building or sidewalk, there can be people hauling shelves, desks, and boxes in and out as a structure's role changes over time. So, keeping track of what university any building may have been used for what over the decades can be tough. For his latest examination of the people, places, and events of the University of Arkansas's first 150 years, Charlie Allison considers Davis Hall. Charlie... The executive editor at University Relations says the building had a singular purpose in the beginning.
7: In October of 1941, the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees authorized planning for a third Women's Residence Hall. The first one, Carnal Hall, had been built in 1906, and a second, Holcomb Hall, opened in 1938. The nation, and certainly Arkansas, were still feeling the effects of the Depression, and the new residence hall was designed to be a cooperative dormitory. Women living in the hall were expected to do much of their own work in keeping the hall clean and functioning. They could also save on their cost of room and board by bringing some produce and canned foods. The initial charge was only $20 monthly for each resident, and $17 if they brought food from home. The site selected for the new dorm was the northeast corner of Maple Street and Garland Avenue, the former location of the original Leverett Elementary School for nearly 40 years. The building was designed with two and a half stories, with rooms in that upper half having dormer windows each. Plus, there's a full basement. The hall is a modified colonial design, and the exterior is buff brick which matched the new field house and Razorback Hall, completed just a few years earlier. It was set back from the street and aligned with the newly completed Delta Gamma Chapter House next door to the east, now known as the Unity House. Construction on the new dorm started in December 1941 not very many days after the infamous attack on Pearl Harbor. Rather than contract the project out, construction was done by the university's Building and Grounds Department under the supervision of L. L. Brown. The house was completed and ready for occupancy in September of 1942. The first floor had a reception area and a large lounge with a fireplace on the western end of the building. There were also matrons' quarters and five bedrooms for women. The second and third floors contained bedrooms for women, with a total capacity of 56 girls in the entire house. The kitchen, dining room, game room, and laundry were in the basement. As I mentioned, it was a cooperative dorm, but it wasn't the first situation in which cooperative living arrangements had been used. Back in 1932, the University of Arkansas became the first American campus at which a women's 4-H house was established. It was similar in organization to a sorority house, but in this case involved an affinity group of nine women who had been 4-H club members they could live in their cooperative house and were charged less than if they had lived in a campus residence hall. However, they were expected to bring produce from their family farms or canned goods to share with the household and to participate in housekeeping chores. The 4-H house proved popular and the women rented a second house, and the popularity prompted the Arkansas Council of Home Demonstration Clubs to begin plans for a permanent larger house that opened at the corner of Douglas Street and Lindell Avenue for the 1951-52 school year. Initially, Residents paid $35 per month in cash or commodities to live in the 4-H house. The building was clad in Ozark fieldstone and comprised about 6,300 square feet of space on three floors. It was torn down in 2003 to make way for the Garland Center. But back to Davis Hall. In fall 1942, the U of A trustees voted to name this new women's dorm Marianne Davis Hall in memory of Marianne Davis, the second dean of women at the university and a member of the faculty for 46 years until her death in December 1939. Davis Hall was dedicated on November 7, 1942, as part of Homecoming Day celebrations. It was one of the few events that didn't get rained out that morning. Speaking during the dedication were Governor Homer Adkins and Judge John G. Ragsdale, Sr. of El Dorado. He was serving as the chair of the U of A Board of Trustees at the time. Also attending were Davis's brother from Springfield, Missouri, and her sister from Oklahoma City, as well as numerous residents of Fayetteville who counted Davis as a friend. Davis Hall proved to be the last permanent building erected on campus until after World War II. And in fact, the young women of the house had to cut short their own stay so that soldiers enrolled in the Army Specialized Training Corps could move into the house. The women vacated Davis Hall by March, and by May, the Army Barbershop was quartered in the building. Every soldier in training walked through that hall at one time or another. The soldiers occupied Davis Hall until Camp Neil Martin was finished on Garland Avenue, and in the fall of 1944, women moved back into the residence hall. And it continued as a women's dorm up until the fall of 1960. The women of the hall sponsored a variety of social events, including a Harvest Moon inter-hall formal, Christmas dances, and skating parties. Of course, those last skating parties were not held inside the dorm. <laughs> After women moved out, men moved in again for a year, and and then the Hall became home to the Alpha Chi Omega sorority in the fall of 1962. Three years later, ACO moved to a new house, and Davis Hall once again became a men's dorm for a year. In the fall of 1966, the Kappa Alpha Theta sorority moved into Davis, and they stayed for 13 years, moving to another house in the fall of 1979. Later that year, the Phi Mu sorority moved into Davis Hall, and they stayed 14 years until the summer of 1993, when they moved next door to the old Delta Gamma house. It was larger and more enticing. So now, are you keeping up with me on all the moves? Shortly after Phi Mu moved out, the School of Law, which is based just across the street on Maple, moved some of its programs to Davis Hall, the legal clinic and the offices of the Arkansas Law Review initially, but followed eventually by the agricultural law programs. After expansion of the Leffler Law Center in 2006, the School of Law moved all its programs back to the south side of Maple Street and the university renovated Davis Hall, converting its bedrooms into offices for the Office of University Relations, which is where I work. The dining hall downstairs was converted into a photographic studio for portraits of faculty and students. The large social lounge on the west end of the first floor was converted to a conference room that could host press conferences if needed. A small extension was added to the rear of the house to provide for an elevator, brick rooms, additional offices, and a second stairwell. And the second and third floors are nearly all offices. While there hasn't been a dance in the hall for nearly 30 years, almost every February 1st, a cake is baked to commemorate the birthday of the hall's namesake, Mary Ann Davis. Cheers.
0: Charlie Allison is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas, and he delivers us weekly trips through the U of A's first 150 years as an observation of the university's sesquicentennial. There are other observations connected to the anniversary, and you can keep up with them by navigating your way to one five zero. Edu. That's one fifty. Edu. This is Ozarks at Large. Any story or interview you hear on our show is shareable through email or social media. Just go to ozarksatlarge.com and find the link associated with the feature you want to share, and then you're ready. Late last year, the United States Department of Justice announced more than $17 million in Project Safe neighborhood grants to 88 federal jurisdictions, including a pair in Arkansas. The annually funded initiative builds collaboration between federal law enforcement and communities to address violent crime. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with Clay Folks, U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Arkansas.
6: U.S. Attorney Clay Folks says the definition of violent crime differs in state courts and federal courts.
9: I'm going to give you the definition for a violent felony offense in federal court, and that comes from 18 U.S.C. 924E is where the statute is found. And it defines a violent felony as a felony that has an element of use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another.
6: According to data provided by Folk's office, the number of violent felony offenses has risen sharply in the Western District over the past three years. In Washington County alone, for example, in 2020, 13 murders were committed, 144 forcible rapes, and 864 aggravated assaults. Sebastian County had a 40% increase in aggravated assaults. Boone County documented more murders, forcible rapes, and aggravated assaults. Benton County, however, has seen an overall decline with the exception of aggravated assault. Social and economic changes due to the pandemic are triggering such crime, experts say. So under Project Safe Neighborhoods, Folks has been traveling the Western District with Public Affairs Officer Charlie Robbins, meeting with local law enforcement in Hot Springs, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, and Bentonville to better assess and reduce violent crime trends in those cities.
9: Violent crime is rising, and it appears that one of the contributing factors to violent crime is drug trafficking. One thing that really struck me in listening to these officers at every stop that we've had is that they're seeing a greater presence of firearms in their drug trafficking investigations. It used to be more occasional that they would occasionally find a drug dealer, a violent drug dealer in possession of a firearm, but now it seems to be a more regular occurrence. And the presence of firearms with violent drug dealers is naturally going to lead to an increase in violent crime in those communities.
6: The 2020 National Drug Threat Assessment Report, authored by the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration, cites violence, intimidation, theft, and financial crimes carried out by transnational organizations, primarily Mexican-based, as a growing and significant threat. Folk says in Arkansas, one of the top trafficked drugs is methamphetamine.
9: But there has been a very disturbing trend recently, in the increase in heroin and a very dangerous drug called fentanyl. And fentanyl is, um, you know, a synthetic drug that's manufactured in labs uh, in other parts of the world. And it can be used in conjunction with both heroin and methamphetamine and also cocaine uh, to increase the effectiveness of those drugs but it is extremely dangerous and just a slight overdose with fentanyl in conjunction with some of these other drugs can be deadly. And we have seen an increase in uh, overdose deaths in the western district of Arkansas. And I wasn't planning on discussing that, so I don't have those numbers in front of
6: me. DEA says inexpensive and potent fentanyl is now supplanting white powder heroin in some districts. One key measure of violent crime for both federal and local law enforcement authorities are gunshots fired incidents. The city of Hot Springs, folks says, responded to over 370 gunshots fired in 2019, which more than doubled in 2020. He says a federal grant program called Shot Spotter has been deployed in that city
9: in which it allowed them to have a more targeted approach to firearms crimes. That leverage their resources to areas that were most affected by the violence. The ShotSpotter system uses a series of microphones and other technology to record, to be constantly recording and looking for gunshots. And the system can page out an officer to respond to gunshots within two minutes. And so they're able to leverage their limited resources to get officers on the ground of shootings very quickly and to try to prevent further damage and further uh, violent crime.
6: Project Safe Neighborhoods was first initiated 20 years ago.
9: And it's changed a couple of times over the years. We're on what we would call you know, the the third generation of Project Safe Neighborhood. And so, but the entire program started back in 2001, and that's when we really focused on the program here in western Arkansas as well.
6: According to data provided by Charlie Robbins, nearly half a million dollars in funding has been granted to the western district over the past four years to implement Project Safe Neighborhoods.
9: PSN is about... Leveraging limited federal resources to have a targeted approach to violent crime. But it's even more than that. It's about engaging the communities and it's about uh, using advertising and technology and partnerships to try to reduce violent crime without making arrests.
6: Folks says a key component of Project Safe Neighborhoods is community policing, which cultivates familiarity between local police officers and local citizens.
9: And I think, to me, that's one of my favorite parts of Project Safe Neighborhood, and it's one of the most important parts of PSN. You know, community policing, and, and that's why we participated in several of these programs, you know, recently and in the last several years, we participated in Shop of the Cop, delivering meals to homeless people. We participated in out with our local law enforcement partners, because for us, an important part of PSN is engaging the community in an effort to try to reduce violent crime. And leveraging technology and advertising, those are all important components of PSN that we're really trying to uh, implement here in the Western District of Arkansas.
6: The latest iteration of Project Safe Neighborhoods has four key principles fostering trust and legitimacy in communities, supporting community-based organizations that help prevent violence, setting focused and strategic enforcement priorities, and measuring the results of those efforts.
9: We see that this is really, really important work for us. And I think the most disturbing trend that we've seen in visiting with law enforcement and just doing this work has been the trend uh, about violence against law enforcement officers. And, you know, it, it seemed like we went years without having an officer be killed in the light of duty. And now it seems to happen much more frequently. And those increases in violence towards police officers and police-involved shootings is probably the most disturbing trend that we're watching here in the Western District of Arkansas.
6: According to the National Incident-Based Reporting System deployed in Arkansas, data provided by law enforcement shows violent crime based on population in the state has risen to the highest level in more than 30 years. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich.
0: Members of the Arkansas Democratic Black Caucus say they will be skipping an event on Monday, a holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., They are upset that former Governor Mike Huckabee has been invited to be the keynote speaker Monday at the MLK Interfaith Prayer Breakfast. The caucus released an open letter to the state's Martin Luther King Jr. Commission, which invited the Republican whose daughter, former Trump White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, is running for governor. Deborah Mitchell is president of the Arkansas Democratic Black Caucus. We
1: were outraged, the Democratic Black Caucus. and We are an extension of the party. We are the voice of the black perspective. And uh, we were outraged.
0: In the letter, the caucus notes several points in Governor Huckabee's political career that they feel negate his credibility, including questioning former President Barack Obama's faith and critiquing the Black Lives Matter movement. Mitchell says the breakfast should be about Dr. King's spirit of unity.
1: It brings together all types of people to talk about and honor and commemorate Dr. King and all that he has done. And they do it through prayer. And so it should be a spiritual based um, keynote that talks about him as a Baptist minister and how he used love and unity to uh, bring together for racial um, equality.
0: Mitchell is encouraging Arkansans to instead support other events hosted by the commission and follow the caucus in not attending the prayer breakfast. The commission works under the State Department of Education. Johnny Key, the education secretary, told the Arkansas Democrat Gazette he fully supports the commission, including the invitation of former Governor Huckabee to speak. On Twitter, former Democratic Party chairman Skip Rutherford also defended the invitation of the former governor.
8: Ozark's at-large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Shiloh Museum of Ozark History in Springdale presents Seen Through Her Wardrobe, Glimpses of Annabelle Searcy. Annabelle Applegate Searcy was one of many women exercising their independence at the turn of the 20th century. Through journals, letters, photos, and more, her life is pieced together. Shilohmuseum.org or 750 for information.
0: Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. The Riders' Colony at Derry Hollow in Eureka Springs right now has three different fellowships available. With Honor and Pride... Seeks U.S. service member or veteran writers. My Time will highlight parent writers, and Words of Wonder is looking for child authors. Recipients of these fellowships will receive a fully funded residency at the Writers Colony. If you'd like more information or you know someone who would like to apply, maybe you, writerscolony.org. And registration is now open for the Creative Arkansas Community Hub and Exchange's Art. Of Fundraising Week that takes place later this month from January 24th through the 27th. It's a virtual free event featuring workshops to benefit the area's arts and culture nonprofits. Sessions include grant writing, maximizing fundraising, and more. If you'd like to know more, cash on Facebook. That's C A C H E. That's C A C H E. Finally, the Northwest Arkansas Jazz Society's sixth annual Jazz All Stars Youth Ensemble is looking for area musicians to take part in this year's edition. Registration is open through January 26th for any young musician who would like to learn or enhance their jazz knowledge and performance. And this will all culminate with a studio session and a live performance at Walton Arts Center. If you'd like to know more, you can go online to digjazz.com.
1: I'm Tanya Mosley. Being pregnant during the pandemic presents new challenges and questions for many.
0: Everything in
3: life is a risk calculus, but the weight of that feels so much greater now that I'm pregnant.
1: An expert answers your questions about pregnancy and the pandemic next time on Here and Now.
0: Here and Now this afternoon, beginning at one on KUAF. And remember, all you need to do to listen to us is ask your smart speaker to please play KUAF. And tomorrow on a Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large, Newton County, a historically sparsely populated region deep in the Ozark Mountains, is experiencing a real estate rush.
6: Right after COVID let up, you saw it just skyrocket. It's like the demand went crazy. And as far as property uh, values go, I've seen it increase at least... 35% minimum, to goodness
0: sakes, I'd say 75%. That story and much more on Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. And don't forget, you can always have access to the daily edition of Ozarks at Large if you download or subscribe to the Ozarks at Large daily podcast. It's available for free through all of the major podcast distributors. And if you missed Something on Ozarks at Large, and you want to hear the most recent edition of our program? Just ask your smart speaker to please play
2: Ozarks at Large. U of A Geosciences Professor Jill Marshall studies geomorphology, and one thing that interests her is how mountains become sediment.
5: One thing I study is the mechanics of how trees, when they're inserted into rock near the surface of the earth, of how they damage that rock, open it up with cracks, and eventually turn it into disaggregated rock or sediment. Every day, that tree is tapping on the rock, and it turns out those little, little tiny taps given enough time, can actually begin to change the porosity, how much void space there is in those rocks.
2: In the latest Short Talks from the Hill, Marshall discusses a recent grant from the National Science Foundation that's allowing her and colleagues to study the effects of climate change on Arctic watersheds. Listen at KUAF.com or ArkansasResearch.uark.edu, the home of research news at the University of Arkansas.
0: This is Ozarks Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News studio is Sherry Otaviano, KUAF's membership director. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, usually you and I get together to announce the previous month's winner, KUAF a Night on Us. And that's what we're doing here. Usually we do it on the first, second, maybe the third day of the month. Yeah, scheduling <laughs> was a bit tough this month.
10: That's okay. It's okay. It's always a pleasure to be here and to get to... Talk about our uh, wonderful sustaining and and giving donors throughout the month. Before we talk, I mean, this
0: is our last chance to really talk about 2021, right? Mm -hmm. That's correct. Uh, Because this will be the winner that we're recognizing for uh, giving to KUAF in December 2021. It was a pretty good year, fundraising-wise. It was
10: a really good year. We're up a little bit this year, and it's it's such a, a wonderful thing. We're... Uh, KUAF is doing so many wonderful things in the community and uh, more local coverage and podcasts and all the good things that we do. And it's because of all of our wonderful donors. And during the month of December, we, uh, Selected at random one of our donors who contributed. Her name is Kathy Krantz out of Fayetteville. I have already sent her Uh a a gift certificate to Mockingbird Kitchen for dinner and some movie passes.
0: All right. Well, so this is not a surprise to Kathy. No, it's not. Old news, Kathy. Sorry. Uh, If someone wants to hear them, and hopefully we'll be doing this on February 1st or 2nd uh, next month, how do you become eligible to be our January winner.
10: If you're a sustaining member, you are automatically uh, thrown into the kitty. And um, if uh, you make any donation during the month of December, whether that's through payroll deduct or just a one-time gift, it'll automatically make you eligible to be drawn, uh, your name might be drawn for a gift night out on us for February.
0: The T-shirts we had for a special level of contribution during our winter fundraiser, they came in. I have one. I wore it. I got to tell you, people were... People were asking me how they could get one.
10: They're pretty darn cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a limited T-shirt. It's actually only the second T-shirt that KUAF has ever done, um, and anybody who contributed a hundred and twenty dollars or more was eligible to get one if they wanted it. And those have all been sent out. So Oof. if you see somebody wearing a KUAF concert-looking type T-shirt, that's that's because they donated during the month of our during the during the season of giving fundraiser.
0: That's okay. They're all gone. So uh, just keep your ears tuned when you hear those exclusive sort of uh, things come again next time. You can always contribute at supportkuaf.com.
10: That's right. Thanks, Sherry. Thank you.
0: is 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Westville, Oklahoma. 91.3 KUAF is a listener supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas and Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors today included Matthew Moore. Jacqueline Froelich and Charlie Allison. Charlie is the executive editor at University Relations at the University of Arkansas. He'll have another trip through the U of A's first 150 years for us next Wednesday. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can find out much more about Daryl and his music wherever you find out more about music online. Speaking of finding out about more online. If you or perhaps somebody you know is looking for a COVID-19 vaccination, we have a list of at least some of the vaccination clinics throughout the KUAF listening area on our webpage. Just go to KUAF.com and then look for the tab that is labeled find a COVID-19 vaccination near me. Click on that and it will list uh, many of the vaccinations. that are also pharmacies and clinics that are offering uh, the shots on a daily basis. If you'd like to see where throughout Arkansas those clinics are located, and some of those will require uh, an appointment. If you'd like to find out where those clinics or pharmacies are, you can go to healthy.arkansas.gov. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and seven for a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Thanks so much for being with us. By the way, if you ever miss an edition of Ozarks at Large. We have several ways that you can keep up. I've mentioned that you can ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large, and then you'll hear the most recent daily edition of our show. If you have the free KUAF app, there's also a listing of past editions of Ozarks at Large on that app as well. By the way, that app also lets you listen to all of the KUAF signals for free wherever you are. KUAF 91.3, KUAF 2, our 24-hour-a-day All Classical Music Station, and KUAF3, which provides jazz throughout the day and on the weekends, provides encore broadcasts of many of our locally produced music programs, like Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsburg, The Pick and Post with Mike Shirky, The Generic Blue Show, with Paul Kelso and more. The KUAF app is absolutely free. It's available right now at the App Store. You can use it with your iPhone or iPad. From inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kelms. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.